Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, a show designed to help you communicate with power and become unstoppable on your path from hidden genius to influential leader. Now, we know you have what it takes to reach your full potential, and that's why each and every week, Johnny and I are here to share with you interviews and strategies helping you transform your life by helping you unlock that X factor. Now, whether you're in sales, leadership, medicine, building client relationships, or even looking for love, we can help you unlock your X factor. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. Did you know that you could get the entire Art of Charm back catalog? That's right, 15 years of podcasts featuring expert guests and toolbox episodes when you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. That's right, the show is completely ad-free and you get all of those amazing toolbox episodes jam-packed with science, drills, and exercises. Sign up today at stitcher.com and use code CHARM to get a free month. AJ, today's interview with Paul Bloom is so much fun and I'm excited for our audience to hear it. You know, we're also huge podcast fans as well. And Paul has been a guest on many of the shows that we listen to. So have him in studio with us was super fun. We talk about struggle, meaning, sacrifice. It is a killer episode. That's right. Today we have Paul Bloom with us. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He's won numerous awards for his research and teaching. He's the author of six books, including How Pleasure Works, The New Science of Why We Like What We Like, and his most recent book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning, is out. And we're excited today to chat about that. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me on. Now, your latest book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning, is out. And we'd be remiss without starting with, what is The Sweet Spot? <laughs> The sweet spot is the right balance between different human goals, like uh, the right balance between pleasure and happiness and meaning and morality. And it's what we all have to struggle to find out ourselves. And what the book is about is the role of pain and suffering and difficulty and struggling and struggle in getting there. I think many of us don't view pain and suffering as a way to meaning or happiness. And we're going to unpack some of the science behind what goes on there. I think it's really important for us to at least start defining some terms for our audience. As Thanksgiving is approaching, many of us might consider time with the family as suffering, but what does science <laughs> consider suffering? Um, suffering has different, has different meanings. The, the meaning I use throughout my book is the sort of experiences you'd normally want to avoid. It could be physical pain, could be emotional pain, could be anxiety and stress and struggle. And it's kind of complicated here because I think some suffering is genuinely bad. And I'll call it unchosen suffering. To take it to extremes, having your child die, getting sexually or physically assaulted, getting a terrible illness. That's suffering that just sucks, and you want to avoid it. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But my book is about chosen suffering, and, and I started, I got interested in this because I noticed that a lot of pleasure um, involves some degree of suffering. BDSM and scary movies, training for a marathon, 
that sort of thing. And then I sort of started to think about the role of chosen suffering as part of a good life more generally. Yeah, you introduced a term that I'd never heard before, benign masochism. Yeah. And this idea of horror movies, mountain climbing, war, roller coasters, BDSM. Why is it that we so often seek out sorrow, fear, and pain? It's a great question, and it doesn't have just one answer. So one reason, and benign masochism was thought up by my friend Paul Rosen, and he, he really noticed that, well, you know, humans are the only animals that like Tabasco sauce. We like spicy foods. Some of us like roller coaster rides and scary movies. And what's going on here? And a lot of things. One thing is contrast. We like to play with contrast a bit. One reason why it's fun to eat really hot foods is because you drink some beer afterwards, and that makes it feel so nice. A hot bath, a hot sauna feels great because of the coolness that, that follows. And that's part of it. Part of it is control, the feeling of control and mastery over struggles and pain. Part of it is that pain can kind of get you out of your own head. This is, I think, what goes on with some forms of extreme exercise or BDSM, where, you know, there's something very distracting about pain that could kind of take you take your mind away from its troubles. And then there's suffering in the, que- in, in the service of a larger goal. You know, take raising kids as a good example, where, um, where it's difficult, it involves sleepless nights, you lose a lot of pleasure, but it's valuable. And part of the reason why things become valuable is you got to work to get them. It also begs the question of how much of our narrative and story building around these events and experiences color the meaning that we have and how much do we how much control do we have over that framing in our own lives it's a good question so my my interest is in suffering and pain that we choose but then there's the suffering and pain that just come to us that just you know part of life and you're right we're good storytellers we often try to tell stories where there's an ultimate purpose for it you know, sometimes these stories are religious. You know, God is testing me. I'll be rewarded in heaven. I'm, uh, you know, I, it's part of some sort of divine plan. But sometimes the stories we tell is we would say everything happens for, for a reason. Or um, this is making me stronger and more resilient. Sometimes the stories are true. Sometimes they're not so true. But yeah, we tend to, um, we, I think suffering has real benefits. But even when it doesn't, we tend to think it is. Yeah. I know in my own experience, when I was training for the half marathon with Johnny and we were going through the pain of (laughs) running long distances and now even thinking about potentially running a a full marathon, part of that suffering had meaning for me in I was doing it with others. I was sharing that experience with others. And I know in the book, there are some examples that you can certainly do solitary marathons. You can do mountain climbing on your own. But it was interesting to me how much of this experience involved others and being connected to others in that shared, chosen suffering. There's a lot of evidence, both from the lab and from the real world, where um, joint suffering does bring people together and, um, and it connects people. And, you know, this is true even for unchosen suffering. There's a wonderful book called A Paradise Built in Hell that looks at uh, Hurricane Katrina and 9-11, and other you know, major crises around the world. And these often bring people together. They, they often, often people don't prey on each other and descend to savagery. Actually, they become much kinder and much closer 
to one another. So suffering does have that power. But even solitary suffering, let me just push back a little bit. My bet is training for, well, I remember I trained for a marathon a long time ago, and it was really tough. And when, when you decide to do these things, you don't say, oh, I'm looking forward to the blisters and the body aches and, and, you know, and maybe failing and exhaustion. But if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have that glow in your eyes when you're talking about it. If it wasn't tough, it wouldn't be valuable. I remember thinking during all that training, and, and AJ, I kept pointing to, to him about the idea of how that beer after that half marathon is is going to taste and i put a lot of of energy to thinking about that beer now however all done and gone it wasn't really the beer that i thought about and how good it was for me it was that summer of training all summer for it and feeling more engaged every day than I was like, I, I felt that I lived more in the moment that summer due to that training than I have so much so that I continued to run regularly after that. And at that time, the half marathon was the longest that I had run since then. I had run past that multiple times because I just felt so good. There was the, the, the amount of chemicals that were released through the brain, how I felt about myself, how I felt about the world around me, uh, the way I would be able to think more clearly as I would trance out during those runs and, and would wander through my mind. Those were the things that even to this day, when I think about training again or getting in, back involved in that, that, that I'm looking for, not the beer. <laughs> not the beer. The, the beer does taste better afterwards. And, you know, um, and, and you're touching upon a lot of the, the virtues of suffering in this context. One is it, it makes the beer taste better. It makes it really, it really adds to the pleasures later on. Um, another is it makes the whole thing worthwhile looking at you guys while you talk about it. You know, you can tell that this is a worthwhile experience. And, but, and yet another while you're doing it. And Steve, still you right now, there's a feeling of mastery of like, you know, you, you, you have control over your body. You have control over your pain. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's going to be tiring. Yes, your heart's going to pound. You're going to breathe really hard, but you got it. And maybe, maybe, and that takes time. It takes time to develop the control, the ability to cope with, you know, the pain training and running hard does to you. And there's a deep satisfaction in doing it. You, none of these things would be possible if it wasn't hard. Well, what I've noticed, and obviously humans have been on this planet a while, there really aren't many feats that only one person can accomplish. So whether it's climbing Mount Everest, you join a club of people who've reached the summit. Completing a half marathon, I found even if I didn't run the half marathon with someone, just hearing that I ran, they got excited because they had that shared experience. And I feel a lot of these choices and suffering, and you talk about in the book, those members who join ISIS for instance, are looking for some form of connection, even if they're suffering through the pain to get to that connected place. Suffering is a great source of community. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's something which can happen in a glorious and wonderful way. It could happen in kind of an awful way. You know, Hitler commented on how suffering brings people together and the value of suffering and struggle. And, you know, you don't want to be like Hitler. But one of the things people say about going to war is that they, have, they are never closer to anybody than the people they serve with. 
And, um, and I think that, you know, without going to war, without a military context, endeavors like training for a marathon or, or, or climbing Mount Everest have the same sort of feature. And many of our guests have come on to talk about happiness and our pursuit of happiness and finding happiness, chasing happiness. It seems like it's the, the hot topic du jour. Unfortunately, what you just talked about doesn't really equate to happiness, war, <laughs> marathon training. You know, there, there are certainly moments in there where I found happiness, but it was very fleeting. So how is that balance of our pursuit of happiness and suffering allowing us to find that sweet spot? Like, how do we find that balance in life? And my follow-up is, do you think there's too much positivity, too much focus on happiness in this pursuit of meaning? I like the word balance, and I'll answer both your questions at once, which is, yeah, I think I, I'm not anti-happiness. You know, a lot of my book isn't, it's not necessarily telling you this is how to live the good life. It's, it's exploring what people want, how people get the most out of life. And I'd be lying to you if I denied that happiness would, everyone wants to be happy. Everybody wants pleasure. And yeah, I think it's, I think living a life without pleasure would be, is, is, is a poor choice. Pleasure is fun. Pleasure is great. But I think many people, including many psychologists, have been single-mindedly focused on happiness, on the maximization of pleasure. And they think that this is what people, only thing people want. They think everything reduces to pleasure, and they think that the best advice they can give anybody is to seek pleasure. And I'm pretty sure all of these things are wrong. We want pleasure and happiness, but we also want to do good things for others. We want, uh, and we also want purpose and meaning. If I offered you two guys a pill that would uh, give you a certain form of Alzheimer's, total dementia, where you lose all your, you become just kind of in a vegetative state, but became deliriously happy. I can't imagine either one of you would take it. If I offered you a pill that would make you into a psychopath, which took away all guilt and shame and regret, and, and you just really get more pleasure out of life now because you could prey on people and won't bother you, I bet you wouldn't take that one either. You want many, people want many things. Yeah, it, it's interesting in that we had a guest on a couple years ago, David Goggins. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him and his story, but much of his adult life is choosing suffering is choosing to be a pull-up champion, is choosing to be an ultra-marathon runner, competing on broken feet. And in that episode, it's one of our more popular episodes to date, it seems like a lot of people aspire to and look up to a pain tolerance and ability to overcome suffering in their own lives, even if they wouldn't choose it every day. I think that that's right, yeah. You mentioned that there's a, a piece to suffering that leads to more happiness, that that pain actually allows us to find happiness and that that counterpoint of suffering creates space for us to realize happiness in our lives. Am I on the right track there? You, de you definitely are, um, in, and in two ways. One thing, and this is what I originally got started on, I was originally interested in it, is that pain can lead to pleasure. There's a lot of ways in which having a bit of pain, you know, the spicy food example and all that can lead to pleasure. But then there's the deeper thing we're talking about now, which is, you know, struggling and suffering is part and parcel of meaningful experiences. And we find those satisfying. We look back on those and we say, that's part of a good life. I'm satisfied I did that. 
You know, so many of the things we do are kind of investments in a way, you know, where we're, we're doing this ridiculously long hike. And at every moment we're saying, man, I wish I was back home in a hot bath, you know, or lying on a sofa watching Netflix. That, that's what I want to be. I don't want to be, God, I have 10 miles to go. Are you kidding me? But then when we get back, well, A, the beer tastes a lot better. But B, for the rest of our lives, we look back and say, I'm the kind of person who did that. And there's a satisfaction to it. You, you made a case of being able to escape from yourself in some of the earlier parts in the books, certainly when it was dealing with BDSM and, uh, and SSI. And the other thing ab- about that, for those momentary moments where you're, you're separated, you're, you're not there, you're, you're somebody else or you're transferred into an, another place. But through that, uh, AJ brings up David Goggins and a lot of his suffering is, is for the person that he becomes due to that suffering, the, the transformation that is there. And I don't know if you in your research had seen that for, I guess I'm, what I'm looking at is the Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs and that self-actualization is the top, is at the top of that. So for those people who are comfortable and content with other areas in their life, here's the next part to, to strive for as if I don't need to find food every day to put on the table, I'm free to be my best self or to become my best self, to transform into my best self. And that transformation comes from the pressures that I'm going to put on myself to bring out the best qualities of myself. Are you tired of the ordinary, ordinary dates, ordinary relationships, or even an ordinary career? I got to say, all the skills in the world aren't going to help you if you don't have the right mindset. You need to have the confidence to move forward in the face of adversity. Success is 80% mindset and 20% skill. Think about everything you've accomplished up until this point, your career, your network, your relationships. Are you living life at your full potential? Are you dating high value people? If you continue on your current path right now, where will you be in six months, a year? Five years. Does your trajectory get you to where you need to go? If not, what are you doing to change it? One thing's for sure. With all the tools and information online, your competition is leveling up. Attracting the right people, opportunities, and network has never been more challenging. Are you ready for the cheat code? Mentorship. You've done it the hard way. Years of frustration. Reading all the books you can get your hands on, searching for greatness. You've seen glimpses, but now you want more. Your own art of charm is where the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Every week, our guests share exactly what makes them extraordinary. What is their X factor? Bottom line, they never hesitate to answer and they never settle for ordinary. To be extraordinary, you need to know how to stand out from the crowd. But here's the secret. Everything you need is inside of you. You're already extraordinary. Let us show you how to unlock it. The X Factor Accelerator was created to mentor you from ordinary to extraordinary. Quit hesitating. Get off the sidelines. Stop settling and unlock your X Factor today. Apply today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. That's a nice way of putting it. I have a, a friend, a philosopher, Lori Paul, who talks about transformative experiences. And these are experiences or choices that not only um, change your life situation, like going to war or, um, or becoming a religious convert or having children, 
but change the kind of person you are. And sometimes we sort of throw our hat over the fence. We, we present ourselves with, a, with forces, suffering, pain, with an idea of becoming a different person on the other side. Typically, if we choose to do it, we want to become a better person. And, you know, you're right at the first part of my book. I talk about suffering as an escape from the self. And I give an example of actually when I, the first time I ever rolled in, in BJJ against somebody much younger and much stronger than me, as was everyone else there. Um, for like two minutes, I'm, you know, struggling not to have my, my head pulled from my body. But I realized during that time, I thought of nothing else. But, but, but the activity, I didn't think about, oh, I have to do this, and I did this embarrassing thing in the past. There's total focus in struggle. But, and that's an escape from self. But then there's the added part that you're focusing on, which is a desire to transform the self. And so many of the big choices we make that involve suffering, even I think a half marathon to some extent, have that sort of transformative appeal. And is there a physiological response in our body that leads to that pleasure after suffering? You know, I think of a hard workout, I think of a long run, I think of these stresses that we put on our body and you hear the runner's high, right? Where you just feel escaped from your body and the pain that you just put yourself through. There has to be some sort of sort of neurophysiological story here involving endorphins and various neurotransmitters and so on. I think we know a lot more about what happens that for something like the runner's high and very short term. I don't think we know anything about that when we talk about things like training for a half marathon, not just your, not just, you know, a one hour run, but training for it, let alone having kids or starting a business or going to war. Obviously, the brain must change. This is we're all talking about brain activity in some way. We know very little about what goes on. And I think in the conversation that you had with Sam Harris, what I found really interesting is when we introduce money into the equation. So there are a lot of misnomers around money and happiness. And, and also, some of the more meaningful jobs in society don't actually compensate you very much. There isn't financial payoff. So when we talk about balance, how do you view money and its influence on, one, our suffering and, and lack of financial means, and then also in our happiness? It's a good question. Look, one of the big findings in happiness research is money makes you happier. I just, you know, in that uh, if you, if you, you want to make more money, well, you're kind of smart because money makes you happier. People making 70,000 are happier and making 40,000 better make 100,000. And it's not surprising. Money buys you all sorts of stuff. And particularly if you're poor, you're vulnerable to, uh, you, to predation, you're vulnerable to, to, to sickness, you have no security. All stuff can make you miserable. Money, money does make people happy. But, and in fact, there's some evidence suggesting this is true even at the high end. People who make $10 million have $10 million are kind of a little bit happier than people who have $1 million. But your question is, it raises an important point, which is there's other things to maximize than happiness. So you, there's been a study of 2 million people where they said, what do you do? What's your job? And the people whose jobs had the most meaning included, included members of the clergy, soldiers, medical professionals, education, edu educators, and some of these jobs don't pay well, and some of these jobs are actually of fairly low status, but they provide a lot of meaning. And so, you know, the, I, I wouldn't blame anybody for trying to maximize the amount of money they make because it's connected to happiness. But on the other hand, if you forget that there's other things than happiness, you could end up in a job, and there are jobs like this, 
which really provide a lot of money and that that has its benefits but they're numbing boring ways of spending your life uh david graber coined the term bullshit jobs which are jobs that that don't do anything you just shuffle around stuff and the world is unaffected and i think these numb the soul over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Well, there's an argument there that the West is full of people who are doing bullshit jobs <laughs> and now are trying to figure out how to bring in meaning or if, if they're not going to bring meaning into that job, they're going to carry on because if it does have a, a hefty pay, then they're happy about that. But they are still going to need to bring in meaning somehow into their life. For instance, for myself, I was just talking to a friend over the weekend and I am 48 years old and I still play music and bands and, and I'm working on a record right now. And I love that pursuit. There's a, there's a lot that, that goes about it. And, and of course, The Art of Charm, which AJ and I had created some 15 years ago, I mean, that, that both of those have so much meaning in my life. And, and both, I, I feel, supply each other with a meaning and purpose back and forth from the science that I learn here. A lot of that exploratory research ends up and fueling inspiration for the music that I'm writing and, and back and forth. The music that I'm writing begs me to ask questions that then I have the opportunity in the art of charm to research and answer. And I enjoy that about having both of those. But for those people who may be doing a bullshit job, they either will have to find that in, in, in some manner, because as I was telling my friend at the end of that conversation, it was the music thing makes everything else tolerable in my life. It sounds like you're doing things right. If you want to look at the happiest countries in the world, you just find the richest countries for the most part. And those are people when people say they're happiest. But if you want to look at the countries where people say they have the most meaning in life, you look for the poorest countries where people actually say their lives have more meaning. Because if you're struggling each day, your work has a sort of meaning it doesn't have if you're fairly prosperous and protected. And, and um, 
And so part of the question is, what does one do if one's in a bullshit job? And the glib answer is find a better job. But, you know, maybe you can't find a better job. Maybe, maybe, or, or maybe you don't want to take the hit or maybe you don't want to lose your health insurance or whatever. So if you can't do that, find meaning in other aspects of your life. And, you know, and, and I have, I, I have a lot of friends who live and have very rewarding jobs, but I also have friends who don't have rewarding jobs and they go, they do their stuff and then they do something else. Well, I think we're seeing this with the great resignation. You know, we have more jobs available, but more unemployed than ever. And it's confounding a lot of economists around, well, wait a second, we thought if there were jobs, people would naturally take the jobs. And we're now realizing that compensation and even happiness are not as important as meaningful work. And for many, meaning was lost once we had to work from home. And we didn't have that connectedness. We were just on screens all day. I wonder, as a parent, as you think through navigating raising children and this idea of happiness versus meaning, you know, how do you strike that balance and support your children as they navigate this? I think it's easier for us as we are older to realize meaning in our life. But for many of our younger listeners, that search for meaning in the very beginning of their career is, is very difficult. It's tough. And it's particularly tough now. Um, there are so many things trying to pull you away from meaning and purpose and sustained practice. Everything from, you know, Facebook to, to Twitter to TV streaming services and everything. We don't have to struggle boredom anymore in this modern world. I have my, I have my iPhone next to me. I could always check my email or go online and so on. And so it's actually very difficult to get off your ass and put down these distractions and focus on something sustaining and complicated and causing some degree of difficulty and anxiety. And many, many young people, I think, find it very difficult to do that. Life, there's just too many other, other distractions. And that's, that's, that's hard. You know, the book that's probably influenced me the most in my life is Mahali Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow. It talks about sort of sustained experience. When you're really into something, you lose track of time, you, don't, you forget to eat, you just zoomed in, focused on hard intellectual work. But he does these surveys, and a lot of people don't ever have flow in their lives. They're always just, you know, just going around and never fully engaged. So it's, it's difficult. I just appreciate the difficulty. Some things get you out of it. Music, musical performance is a way of, of, of getting a sustained attention focus. Sports, certainly. Writing, reading sometimes. Um, early in the book, you were, you were laying out the argument of being able to explore and, and especially exploring these emotions in your mind. And for myself, uh, I'm not into horror movies or anything like that. However, the music that I listen to is certainly on, it can be very dour and it can be very dark and nothing makes me feel the way that that music 
does. And for the average listener or somebody who just came upon it by chance, I think it might horrify them. <laughs> Where for, for myself, I find it harrowing and and lifting and just so dramatic. And and of course, I think back to Wagner or some of the other more controversial artists whose music was so dark comparatively to to the other artists of the times and or the first time i there was a seeing a show live where i started to weep because of the emotions that i was feeling in in that performance and how much i chase those moments that's such a good counter argument against those who would say well we just want to have happiness we just want to kind of boost up on the pleasurable emotions, you know, joy, sexual satisfaction, satiation, you know, exhilaration, all those positive things. It doesn't describe people. We often enjoy sampling negative emotions. We often enjoy sampling fear and regret and sadness in, in the right doses, in controlled circumstances. But there's something um, Michael Norton calls emo diversity which is the idea that, that we, we want to get a range of different emotions sometimes. A full life involves getting this and that, trying out different things. So, you know, we, you would imagine, all of the sort of hedonistic theories of human nature would say we avoid being frightened because being frightened is bad. And yet, there we are going to haunted houses and seeing the most disgusting and terrifying horror movies or listening, listening to songs that, that, you know, that freak us out or make us cry. So this is a wonderful case. You touched on religion earlier, and you think about all the great religions involve characters who suffer, good, amazing people who suffer. And through suffering, we come to worship them. We don't go to movies to just see people experiencing happy for two and a half hours. We don't go and seek out this entertainment that just is hedonistic and pleasure-filled. Almost all stories that we share as humans across centuries, generations, cultures even, have suffering baked into the storyline. They have a hero's journey that we're drawn to. Do you feel that this is something that crosses all cultures and we all as humans are drawn to? Because you mentioned earlier, you know, some of the more happy cultures, some of, some of these differences we're seeing in meaning even are cultural. Some things are cultural. There's cross-cultural differences in the sort of suffering people enjoy, in the sort of pleasures people like. Uh, there's also individual differences. Sometimes people don't like horror movies. Other people like spicy food. Some people don't. But there are also universals. And I think you're touching on an important universal, which is just like the lives we want to live require suffering and struggle. The stories we want to watch and listen to and read about also involve the same thing. You know, the, you ask, what is a story? What does a story have to have to be a story? And one answer, I think a good answer, is it has to involve somebody facing an obstacle. It could be funny. It could be the obstacle. It could be a, a fun rom-com where couples are get together. It could be the most horrible Holocaust narrative of people trying to survive. But you need an obstacle. And this sets up the possibility of a hero's journey. But also sets up the possibility for somebody just struggling. And as soon as you get to struggle, you get to difficulty, and you're on your way to, to suffering. The obstacle doesn't even have to be surmounted. You know, Rocky finished the fight, but he didn't win. I don't want to run to spoil a lot of movies, but some of my favorite sports movies, they don't end up winning at the end. But they, they fight a lot, and that's interesting. That, that just catches us. 
my favorite movie that ends that way is the bad news bears, but the struggle that those children go through and what they learned about themselves and the connection that they had with their fellow teammates that they wouldn't have had without the struggle and the suffering of playing on this horrible baseball team. And the only way that they were going to get to a place of feeling good about themselves is to figure out how to connect and win as a team rather than the, uh, be individually. And I mean, that, that movie seeing it, I'm 48. So I saw it at a very tender age, which also set up probably a, a lot of wanting to, to connect with other kids as well. And also feeling a bit of a, of an outcast as that whole team was basically made up of outcasts and being able to see something that you could relate to. And though I, we can overcome together. Like we can, we can become something that perhaps we maybe don't feel or are individually. It's a classic story. Uh, Ted Lasso is the most recent example of that. Um, but you know, the dirty dozen and you know, get a ragtag bunch of losers together and then watch them struggle. And then, you know, in, in the middle, they'll fail and it looks like it's all hope is lost and they spring back. Here's the worst idea for a movie ever. Bring together people who are tremendously successful, have a clear advantage. They get together and they easily win. It's, just, it's like, wow, it's, wow, that's a terrible movie. You want, you, you want to see, um, you want, and, and the reason why we like the bad news bears is because there's struggle. Because the struggle brings people together, because because um, and because it has this this arc, you need you need a sort of arc. One guy, this this data scientist, went on Wikipedia and he just scrubbed it and took out like over a hundred thousand different stories, you know, plays and books and movies, and he analyzed them to see what their structure was. And the most common structure overall is things you know get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Then they get better at the very end. There's victory, and that's boom. Not necessary, you know, but, but, but that, that's a good thing. This search for meaning is universal. I mean, philosophers have thought about it. Many books have been written about it. In the book, you make the argument that we can achieve a meaningful life without trying to achieve it or think about it. It's a bit counterintuitive to think we could find meaning without even looking for it. How, in your view, is that possible? Yeah, I'm pushing back on all of the philosophers who say an unexamined life isn't worth living and you've got to be thinking. If you're not thinking about meaning, it's not meaningful and so on. And, you know, I, I, some of my best friends are philosophers, but, but that's, you know, that's like, like a, a barber saying the meaning of life is to have well-trimmed hair. Uh, it, this, these guys are focusing on what, they, on what they, they focus on. For me, a good analogy is getting in physical shape. Which is, well, one way to get in physical shape is to, is to read up on it a lot and plan and have an exercise plan. But you can imagine somebody who's in great shape who never thinks of being in great shape. They just live a life conducive to being in great shape. Similarly, I don't know if Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama ever spend a lot of time thinking, like, ever spend a lot of thinking, gee, is this meaningful? Am I meeting, am I living a meaningful life? They just are. Well, on the flip side, a lot of people, you know, sit sit on their butts on the couch and they scroll through different TV channels and they spend hours wondering, what is meaning? Is this, what is the best life? How do I maximize? They're not living meaningful lives. They're just thinking about it. So yeah, you could do, you could do it without trying. Well, those two examples are 
extreme acts in service of others. Yes, that's right. Right. I mean, we're talking about two of the most charitable people in history. So what role does that service of others play in, in our finding meaning in our own lives? Much of what we see in social media and is driven in the narrative today of your own personal highlight reel, everyone wants to put out what they're doing and what they're up to. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about service to others. It's an interesting question. And I'm going to sort of say something, which maybe is, it will be a bit surprising. When you look at what people think of as a meaningful activity, it does involve having an effect on others, having some sort of oomph, some sort of impact on the world. And it's very natural to think of this in terms of helping others. But honestly, you can get that in terrible ways. Adolf Eichmann Whatever you will say about him as he you know, planned the Third Reich and the murder of millions of people was, was, was lived a meaningful life. He had, he had big goals that he wanted to achieve. He focused. He had flow and so on. So I think, I think the ingredient for meaning is big impact. We like to think of that in terms of goodness, but it can also be in terms of evil goals. I don't know. If you, if I, this is sounding kind of, kind of flippant after talking about the Holocaust, but, but Thanos in, in 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 the Marvel series, definitely was a guy who had meaning in his life. You know, collect infinite stones and kill half half of the sentient beings in the universe. That's a goal. Not a good goal, but it's a goal. When you think about impact, prestige is often what follows, right? We don't pay close attention or canonize those who've had minimal impact, <laughs> unnoticeable impact. So is there a link between chasing prestige and, and chasing status and, and meaning? It's a good critical response to me because I want to argue we're after meaning. We're after real meaning. And you could come and say, well, you know, isn't it strange that these real meaningful things tend to get you a lot of acclaim and status and love? Maybe that's really what we're after. And I think there are ways to pull these apart. I think, for example, a lot of the meaningful things we do and raising kids is my go-to example here. Don't get you status and acclaim and fame. You know, you're you're a good dad to some kids. It's no one's going to give you a, an award or whatever. Um, but still, is a value. But in the real world, yeah, I would like to say somebody who climbs Mount Everest is seeking a sort of meaningful pursuit. But if you wanted to push back and say, oh, maybe they just like the fame that comes with having climbed Mount Everest, it's it's hard to argue against. It's, they're very difficult to pull apart. Yeah, there's very few pictures on social media on the top of Mount Everest. You you enter a very select company. Well, you're also on that journey. You're passing a, a lot of notable folks whose graves are on that mountain and that you're going to have to see. There's, there's a good question. What distinguishes those people who do it from those people who don't? Yeah. The other thing that immediately came to my mind there as well is how much does procreation or that love come into play subconsciously we you know for evolutionary purposes how much is driving our everyday thoughts that we're not even conscious of and if we're not going to be the the healthy physical specimen well then we're going to have to figure out other ways to get that attention approval and acceptance that we so crave for ourselves that allow us to know that we're okay and and a lot of these pursuits give us, build character. They make us individuals. They make us unique to everybody else. So here's my opportunity to separate myself and to get that attention. 
Yeah, you could distinguish two motives here. One is to sort of, for myself, mark myself off as distinct, satisfy my own desire to be special. You could also say a lot of this is what evolutionary theorists call signaling, which is each and every one of us, from a baby to an adult, man, woman, whatever, wants to show off their best self. This is how you get the best mates, the best friends, the best, uh, the best support in the world. And so, and this is in one way in which pain comes in, pain and suffering comes in, which we haven't talked about yet, which is one reason why people choose to suffer is because it shows the world how tough they are. Or, or you know, from, yeah, you just say, oh, yeah, you know, I just, I've been training for uh, Ironman triathlon. Oh, don't pay attention to me. It's just something I do, you know. It's, 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 it's a way of, of sort of showing off. Just as religious suffering, people, there are people who get crucified during Easter in, in, to, to, in, in reminiscence of, of Christ's crucifixion. There are people who, I talk about this in my book, who go through grotesque religious rituals. And sometimes it's showing how pious they are, you know. And so, so that plays a role too. You guys were both talking about the sort of social nature of suffering. And one thing is the social nature is that she says it brings you together to a group. But another way is, you know, you ever see a group of kids together at a table, teenage boys, and they're seeing who could, could eat the most wasabi? That's what we do too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you bring up kids and you also in the book talk about how the happiest moments are actually when the kids leave the house. Much pain and suffering <laughs> is in child rearing and the stress that goes along with raising children. So how is it that kids provide that opportunity for meaning, yet when we're actually experiencing raising them, it's not tied to the classical markers of, of happiness or meaning necessarily. It's a lot of stress. It's a wonderful illustration of how you could pull apart happiness from other things. You take... Um, you know, I was talking to this guy the other day, uh, and he has uh, two kids. I think they were one and three. And the guy looked to me like he hadn't. I was talking to him over Zoom. Like he hasn't slept in a week, and he's like, "Oh, he's like a zombie and everything." And and he's going on about how how exhausted he is and how freaked out he is and overworked and insane. And plainly, you know, my kids are way are adults now. Plainly, in my life, I think was some more pleasure. But but there's something hugely rewarding in what he was doing. And part of this is, is what we haven't, another thing we haven't talked about before, which is love, which is, you know, one of the signs of a life well lived is loving relationships and the relationship you have with your kids, I don't know, is, is, is intense and special and unusual, sometimes terrible, some often wonderful. And, and it doesn't reduce to simple, boy, I'm having more hedonistic joy than I had before. That example of kids, or we, we look at Gandhi and Mother Teresa, much of this is a legacy that, that lasts beyond our time here on earth as well. You know, we hope and pray that our children will outlast us. So is there meaning tied to that legacy that we leave in the work that we do? I think there is. I think one difference between pleasure and meaning is pleasure is kind of fleeting. Pleasure, you have pleasure, you have fun, and then it goes away. And in fact, if you try to recapture it, it just gets boring after a while. Well, meaningful pursuits are long-term. And the real meaningful pursuits we imagine are long-term that extend beyond our lives. And, you know, raising kids is a wonderful example. It's not the only example. I think musicians and artists and writers often aspire to, to have a ripple effect, to have an effect on things 
after you're gone. And as well as people who do good works in general. You know, I, I help somebody and I think, well, you know, maybe their life has improved in ways that, that I won't be there to witness. Yeah, you think about science and, and research and, and understanding something that is a mystery. You think about creation and art. So obviously we've, we've used the example of raising children quite a bit, but there are plenty of other ways for those in the audience who aren't necessarily considering kids. And I should say, I think, I think, uh, I think kids are, are um, a great source of meaning, but I know a lot of people who aren't parents whose lives are incredibly rich and meaningful. And I think that, I think the balance is such that having kids is kind of a tough call. There are so many other ways in which you could have a rich and meaningful life. Um, and you know, you have kids, it, it precludes certain options. And we're not making the argument that kids guarantee meaning in your life. No, don't, it's, don't, don't sue me if you have kids and then, and then you're, <laughs> where's my you're, meaning, Paul? You're, you're I have like, children like, and I'm not finding it. <laughs> that's, that's right. My life is, is empty of meaning, you bastard. That's right. No, you're going to have I'm, a lot of kids sent your way, Paul. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to take care of your kids if you find it they were a mistake. <laughs> well, for a, a lot of parents, I mean, the, the way that they look at their children and the way they raise them, for a lot of them, you always hear, well, I want my children to have a better life than I did. And, and you usually hear that across the board. Even people who had great lives aspire to give their children even better lives than, than they have. So obviously there's a lot of meaning that, that goes into that practice that allows them, again, to feel good about what they are doing. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, and, 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 and there's another component, which is, if you ever meet a cynic who tells you we just want to be happy and get short-term pleasure, point out to them that most people want their kids to be happy or their friends or their, 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 their family, people they love, to be happy and flourish even after they're gone. You know, even when there's nobody there to be happy to, to witness them. And, you know, I know people who make sacrifices for when they're gone so that others will, will live a good life. And it's very hard to reconcile that with sort of simple-minded, hedonistic approach. And there are many in our audience who are living their lives right now simply to make others happy and sacrifice their own happiness along the way. Another point I wanted to touch on is anxiety. We talk a lot about anxiety on the show, and anxiety is really the anticipation of future suffering or pain. And it'll often block us from taking actions that lead to suffering. How do you view anxiety in this balance and sweet spot search for meaning? Yeah, I think like a lot of things, anxiety has a kind of sweet spot. I don't want to overuse the term, but we talk all the time about people who have too much anxiety. And because those are people, they, such people are unhappy. They, 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 they end up in psychiatrist offices and they end up taking medication. But the evolutionary uh, psychologist, Nessie, says, what about people with too little anxiety? He says, you know where you find them? You find them in morgues and prisons because they're not anxious enough. They don't anticipate bad events enough. And so they get into all sorts of trouble. It's too much anxiety if I'm afraid to go on the balcony of my uh, 10th floor, it's too little if I'm playing tightrope by bouncing up and down on, on, on a ledge, you know? So you want an optimal amount of anxiety. And the situation will dictate what the optimal amount is. 
sitting in my nice house in Toronto, I need less anxiety than if I was in a maximum security prison. But um, but we need we you want to you want to have the right amount of anxiety. It's it's hard to miss. It, it's easy to miss this because anxiety is bad. It doesn't feel good, but it's good for us. In that way, it's kind of like physical pain. You know, you might think, well, pain sucks, and pain does suck. I wish I could have an off switch to shut off the pain. But we know there are people who have neurological disorders where they feel no pain, and they often don't live past adolescence because they don't develop. The, the natural tendency to protect their bodies from damages. Yeah, it's a guardrail for be- dangerous behaviors. Exactly, exactly. And negative emotions in general, we, we might imagine we want to rid ourselves of them, of, um, of anger, of jealousy, of shame, of guilt. But if you have too little of them, it will bite you in the ass in different ra- ways. I feel in many respects we have this need for story, this need to create meaning. When we find no meaning and it's meaningless, we we panic. And oftentimes we'll we'll write stories that aren't ground in reality or based on the facts on the ground to help us mitigate or deal with that pain and fear. Then you have this other camp that's, you know, positivity for the sake of positivity and rewrite every narrative to be positive to you. So how do you balance the those who, who rewrite every narrative to be the victim versus those who rewrite every narrative to be the, the victor? So there's two questions here. One question is, what's the sort of psychological benefits of this? There's no neutral stance. So when bad things happen, do I envision myself as the hero rising above them or do I envision myself as crushed by them? And, um, and it's probably beneficial Dan Gilbert talks about a psychological immune system, which is a tendency to tell stories in which it's okay. I did well to benefit from it. You know, I actually think that as a grown-up person, we should try not to tell false stories. We should try to be true to what happens, not just because it's good to know true things, because I think that too, but also because it helps us in the future. And I think that's actually the danger of telling these, it's, it all happens for a reason and there's a plan and everything, which is, you know, we want to recognize the existence of randomness and treat the world accordingly. Just to take an extreme example, there are people who think that if they have some good fortune, some bad fortunes coming their way and vice versa, they believe in sort of balance theory. Well, it's not true. The universe, the universe doesn't care. The universe does not care. It's an, un, it's an unfeeling universe that doesn't, doesn't love you, doesn't hate you either. So that's nice to know. And I really appreciate the the focus on balance because I feel that in order to get through the ups and downs of life, the pursuit of balance means there's going to be times when it tilts to either side and it's completely out of our control. And much of what we know about biology is around this return to homeostasis, this return to the middle. And as we now are living through and experiencing in this podcast, suffering, there's a balance. Happiness, there's a balance. And in that balance, we can find meaning in our lives. That's beautifully put. It's, uh, it's also Aristotle, I'm told. The Aristotelian idea of, of a life, of a good life is a well-balanced life among different priorities. And that's to answer the sort of question we began with. That's when we are talking about the sweet spot. Well, it's interesting and and talking about balance, and of course, we have a lot of clients who who ask, 
how do I get more balance in my life between everything? And, and I, and I think that question in and itself has many answers to it where for a lot of folks, the new thing is about seasons, about shifting from one thing to the other and create balance that way, rather than living your day very balanced, which I can understand would drive people a bit batty as, as well. I've, I, I've done this much work. I have to do this, you know, that, that has its own thing as well. But looking at your life on a timeline and looking at the, the seasons and, and the efforts that you're putting in the, to certain things to derive that enhancement of life or enjoyment out of life. And whether that is pleasurable or the suffering that you're transforming or getting something out of on the other end. It's an interesting thought. I never thought of that way of balancing it. I always thought of it as sort of a day-to-day thing. It's kind of freaky to think somebody said, well, summer, I'm going to focus on pleasure. But winter's coming up, and that's going to be truth. Then, you know, next year I'll start myself off with some uh, meaning and then move to beauty. And then, you know, so it's, it's an interesting way. Well, I can tell you living in New York City, I definitely pursued pleasure during the summer and <laughs> stayed indoors during the winter. <laughs> I chose my things wisely. If you're going to choose pleasure, I'm in Canada, man. Don't, don't go for pleasure in the winter. Winter should be truth. Work on truth then. Sorry, I was just going to say that there, there's these studies that uh, look at how people naturally balance things in their lives. Suppose, you have some, suppose later today there's some good things you're looking forward to, you know, a call with a friend or something, and some bad things like clean the kitty litter or something. People balance them. People naturally need to put a balance. Once you do a very good thing, people tend to do a bad thing and so on. There's a natural sense of balance. I, liked, I love the seasons idea. It's the coolest thing I've ever heard of. I don't really think it's very tenable. Well, the way that was relayed to us is so that this month or this, this quarter, I'm going to be focusing on work. And then once I have this situated and got this up to a certain level of where I'm, I'm happy with it. Now I'm going to this next season because I've invested in work. This season goes to family (laughs) to make up for the time that I spent focused on work. Well. I, I, more power to let me know how that works out for <laughs> we love asking every guest one last question what your x factor is what it is that you think makes you extraordinary paul so there's a supposition in there do any of your guests modestly say no i nothing i'm just not extraordinary some do definitely i'm going to tone down on, on the extraordinary but say a skill that i have and and I'll be I'll I'll match this with um with a skill I don't have, which is and, and this isn't a sort of scholarly research domain. I know people who are like laser beams, t- focusing on something with tremendous analytic depth, going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I really admire that. That's not my strength. I see my X factor as that I I tend to be able to integrate things from a lot of different areas and put them together in in maybe new ways. And, you know, I'll let other people be the judge of whether I succeed at that. But that, that's, that's one of the things I try to do in my book. Well, we can definitely appreciate that. Your latest book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning is out. We highly recommend our audience check it out. Thank you for joining us, Paul. Fun conversation. Thank you for having me. This was tons of fun. Johnny, the perspective that Paul offered our audience is so important. We often have how-to guests on the show, breaking down the science, 
But it's important to realize that life is about balance when it comes to suffering, when it comes to pleasure, and that happiness that we're all looking for. Yeah, I really dug that Paul had a curiosity, so he wrote this book as an opportunity to research this subject that has been on his mind. And for me, that's why I love discovery and exploration, to answer the questions that mull around in my brain. Well, we know there are a lot of questions up there. (laughs) There certainly are. This week's shout-out goes to Joshua, who wrote us in our Facebook community group to tell us how grateful he is for the skills he learned at his Art of Charm program. Joshua manages a Trader Joe's and told us how much his Art of Charm skills have helped manage his team and keep everyone in the proper headspace during the pandemic. He used those skills to train his staff on body language and eye contact to help ease customer tensions and keep his staff feeling good doing their jobs in a difficult environment. When it comes to communication, most people think of the conversations that we have, but we know that communication is something that happens verbally and non-verbally. We help our clients not only supercharge their verbal communication, but also make sure that their non-verbals match exactly what it is that they want to be saying about themselves. Remember, your actions speak louder than words. If you want to be like Josh and join us in our Facebook community, head over to theartofcharm.com slash group to join today. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a huge favor? Head on over to iTunes and rate and review this podcast. It would really mean the world to us, help others find the show, and helps us get great guests like Paul Bloom. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Until next week, have a great one.